As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. With me is my co-host, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Fantastic, Mark. And I am Mark Bigney. We've got a lot of excellent feedback about last week's episode, and I just wanted to stress something, sort of a coda to our discussion of the many publishers that are either coming hat in hand, asking for more money, or the ones who clearly are going to, but are saying they won't, or any number of shenanigans, be they financial or truth flexibility related. And that is, if you have had any fulfillment from any Kickstarter for you over the past six months to a year, they have had serious financial troubles. And they've had to deal with incredible shipping difficulties. And most of them have remained silent about it. Most of them have not come for you for money. Most of them have taken it on the chin. And I'm not necessarily saying that they had to. I'm not necessarily making a judgment. But let us at least acknowledge, because I heard a lot of people mentioning, it's like, oh, Mythic and, and Blacklist and everything. Yeah, my shipping bill got doubled and I dealt with it. <laughs> we, we acknowledge you. We see you. And we appreciate all those people that have braved the great container wars of 2021 and 2022 to get us our little toys. And we just got out of Gen Con weekend as well, Mark. I can I can safely say I got everything done at Gen Con this year that I wanted to get done at Gen Con this year. <laughs> did you do any official or unofficial Gen Cant activities? I, I did not. I not was, officially. I was very disappointed to learn that Gen Cant does not involve reading any of the works of Emmanuel Cant. Oh, yeah, it, I was I was very disappointed. I thought it'd be like a new new generation of Kant. That's why it was called Gen Kant. I, I got excited. And yeah, then... the next group of Kantians to emerge. Anyway, we're going to talk about board games this week. We're going to talk about the games we played last week, the news and why it doesn't matter, and then our feature game. Our feature game this week is Carnegie. So, Walker, what did you play last week? Mark, I played a game called My Father's Work published by Renegade Game Studios. This has been all over the, the internet as being an especially long game. We didn't even get through the whole game. That's how long it was. Now, all of those people that have their finger hovered over the send button, let me get through this sentence before you start clicking. Because I'm going to <laughs> compare uh, my father's work to Scythe, but only <laughs> but only a single mechanism. Mark, okay. Mark, you know, okay. you know in Scythe they have the secret missions? Yes. And they have the explore cards. Have you ever thought to yourself, man, I really wish they flushed that out. 
I wish those cards were like five to six pages of texts, <laughs> and I wish it made the game two hours longer than it should be. No, actually, when, whenever we talk about Scythe, I frequently praise the mission cards or adventure cards as doing a lot with a very little amount of text. This is what I'm talking about. My father's work is all of this backstory and and stuff going on for very little actual gameplay payoff. It's very minor one or two victory points or a little bit resources. And not that the game itself is terrible, but it's very much, you know, worker, place your workers, get the goods. It has a little bit of a trickarion feel. Here are your experiments. Get the stuff you need for your experiments. Do the experiment. And then those experiments help you do other experiments. That part was enjoyable. This, you know, extenuous story driven life thing. Maybe it'll flush out if I get the whole game played. I'm not sure, but just on this very first play, it just seemed very empty and extra long that it needed to be. How's the quality of the writing? Not terrible. <laughs> Damning with faint praise. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my father's work. It's designed by TC Petty the third and published by, like I said, Renegade Game Studios. Got to play a game of Cleos. Cleos I initially played on Tabletop Simulator a few weeks ago. This is a sort of Greek mythology smackdown, whereby you're hurling monsters at each other, and Greek gods and Greek heroes are all crawling out of the woodwork. And it's kind of sort of almost a troops-on-a-map drafting area majority game. And one of the things that I really appreciate about Cleos, and this is actually going to be true of another game I'm going to talk about later, is that it basically adopts the perspective that you might as well subject people to a constant stream of badassery. And that's a design philosophy and a design remit that I can really get behind. You know, as compared to some of my favorite whipping boys, like, like Northgard recently, nominally about Greek mythology, not really any details to be found anywhere. Here's your generic clan chieftain. Here are your generic clan warriors. Here are your generic resources. If there are going to be the trappings of a rich world, either mythologically inspired or perhaps you created it for the game, you might as well be having everything infused with character, if at all possible. It just seems like an obvious value add. Go all in. Absolutely. And with Cleos, you might as well have Prometheus showing up and buffing Leonidas, king of Sparta, and then Prometheus being sent to Hades by a giant arrow from the sky, courtesy of Artemis. But then Morpheus, the god of dreams, showing up and having Prometheus come back from Hades, and then suddenly Eros shows up and Prometheus switches sides. These are things that should happen in your game, if at all possible. And it's definitely preferable than, again, a series of generic non-inspired, it's like, oh, well, this is my one one two thing. It's like, oh, okay. That, that doesn't seem overwhelming at all, Mark. Well, it's manageable. It, it wasn't overwhelming in terms of complexity. It was it was just solidly infused with character of Greek mythology. I talk a lot about mythological games that don't bother going the extra mile to infuse anything. It's like, okay, well, these are the Peloponnesian Wars, and, you know, the gods are just watching, so let's have generic uh, uh, hoplites. Uh, okay. Why, what, uh, all right. Fine. At any rate, Cleos is a very simple dice chucker where there's a host of special effects, but there's not a whole lot of take that. Most of the card play is restricted to a single phase, and then after that, you're then marching your tremendously powerful heroes, some of which may be riding a manticore uh, or the hydra that was recently fed a, a priest of Zeus, for example. All these things are actually things that happen in the game. And then you fight over 
uh, points. You get points for kills. So the combat is very, very transactional as a consequence. You don't get into battles of attrition. Now, one thing that it does do is it's only five rounds long and player order can be very, very, very consequential. Sometimes you want to go first because you want the kills. Sometimes you want to go last because you want to be able to determine the area majority. The problem is in a five round game, if you're playing, say, three to five players, the odds of that evening out are relatively slim. And the times when you have the large creatures and you want to go first, you might not be going first, you might be going last, etc. That can be a bit of a downer. But the game's not too, too long. I'd be happier if it, if it shaved about 20 to 30 minutes off the playtime. It took about 90 to 120 minutes. I think for, for a game of this ilk, I'd, I'd feel much better if it were like 60 to 90 or, or 75 on average. But I had a good time with Kleos. I enjoyed it. It was My one concern playing it in person was that you have these wooden meeples that just correspond to a slot on your player board. Like this is my people with a three on it. And what that represents is just a function of whatever card happens to be on my player board at number three. It worked out fine. Everyone was able to internalize the, the state of play, who was what and where. There wasn't a whole lot of con- uh, confusion. There was, however, a lot of delight and bemoaning the results of the dice, but it's a decent dice checker with lots of flavor. And given that the rule set is very approachable, it is hard to object too much to some of its sins. That is Cleos, designed by Jim Cavanaugh, published by Azure Horizon Games. Sounds a little bit like Meeple War, what I got to play, with the transactional combat, I mean. It's very much, you move into a territory and you take off you know, a troop each until you're down to only one person in the area. What Meeple War does is, though, you're building these buildings. That's exactly the opposite. That's attritional combat. Attritional combat. But it does have these interesting buildings, because every time you can have up to four buildings, and every time you build a building, you put a worker on it. And then you get to follow these cool little paths. You get to decide what is going to be done at that building. And they're all different types of buildings. You're either deploying troops or putting them in the barracks or doing all sorts of different things. So, and you have a whole stack of 10 different buildings you can build. So you can cycle through them, but you only can have four out at a time. Meanwhile, you're going out onto the map, exploring, attacking the enemy, and you're just, it's the first to six points. If you destroy an opponent's building, depending on how many meeples you had on it, because that's, you know, some buildings require three to destroy it, some require four, those are just straight up points. And the other way you get victory points is going up the bravery track. So every time you kill your opponent, you're moving up the bravery track. Every time you hit seven, you get to put a guy on your victory point. That's another point. First to six wins. Nice and quick. Love the little worker, you know, sort of schematic of what you want to do because all the workers were move one space every turn. So sometimes, you know, you have to move them quite far along the track to get to where you're going or that branches off in different directions and you still have to build those buildings as well. So the more powerful ones have a longer track for the build side. And then once they build, you flip them over and then you start, you know, producing whatever they do. Definitely want to try it with more than just two players. I don't think it shines at two players. There's a little bit of, you know, weird you know with the tunnels and the way they move and the fact that you're just going head to head a lot of the abilities don't work quite as well because there's this interesting conversion building as well where you get to convert the opponent's meeples to your side and with two players it was a little wonky so looking forward to playing it with multiple people this is originally put out by blue cocker games simon also put out an edition and it's designed by max velenbois 
On the topic of charming multiplayer conflict games, played another game of Imperium the Contention. Imperium the Contention is the sort of greatest hits version of a 4X game, but rather than a laborious 6-8 hour experience where you're playing 6 or so rounds and victory may or may not be determined by turn order, you instead get to play a delightfully quick experience where all your cool stuff can be deployed by turn 2 or 3 or so, and you're playing lots and lots of rounds, which helps even out such things as turn order. Uh, Imperium the Contention, I think, compares favorably to Cleos, primarily because it is quicker, and but it does have the same sort of feeling as you're constantly getting new toys to play with. Here they don't have the mythological touchstone, of course. They're sort of a somewhat generic sci-fi experience, you know. The the throne is absent, fight to blah, 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 blah. But the races have a certain degree of personality, and the asymmetry is very, very real. More asymmetry in the Imperium of Contention than you get a lot of other uh, 4X games, or even legitimate 4X games. We've talked a lot about Imperium of Contention in the past. I'm a big fan. I It continues to win over friends. Even people who are frowny Euro prefers often enjoy Imperium of Contention. And it's, I have yet to play a game where it overstays its welcome. The one problem that it is occasionally prone to, namely the fact that it has a sort of, you can enter into a production death spiral, not unlike other 4X games. This is largely a theoretical concern. I've only ever seen it manifest once or twice in actual play. Uh, but in all other areas, I think Imperium of Contention is preferable to most actual 4X games. Even the 4X games we like, like Eclipse, for example, we talk about how it has lots of great personality and character in the shipbuilding, but it is nonetheless mired in a lot of the traditional problems that you're going to find in a lot of 4Xs. And Imperium of Contention, because of its fluid map, because of its lack of pinning, because of, uh, because of its quick turn structure, and the fact that things keep moving along at a good clip, do not suffer from those problems. So, once again, Imperium the Contention by Gary Dwarowski at Contention Games. There are rumors and rumblings of a, of an incoming expansion. I am looking forward to that. I got to put Neoshima Hex onto the table and more exactly the new Beast expansion. So this is a game, sort of like a puzzle game. They say you can play up to five players. It is a two-player game, and there are tons of different factions you can play, and they do all sorts of different things, and this new expansion is no different. This really doubles down on the friendly fire, because usually you can only attack your enemy. Like, any attacks you do do not affect your own troops, not so much with the beasts. They have this new symbol that if your own troops are in the way, well, too bad. Same with oh my. netting, attacking, all sorts of things, so it leads to all sorts of you know, weird placements that you have to be careful of because they do attack in all sorts of different directions. It uh, has this weird mechanism where you actually get to start the game with a unit on the board. Very interesting things going on. If you are into two-player sort of chess-like puzzling games, definitely check out Nirishima Hex. Like I said, asymmetric factions. There's at least 15 of them now. I was a little upset. Like I said, this is a new expansion. The Beast one does not fit in their nice new big box. Yeah, it's a shame. You know, let's put out a big box that, you know, we promise that we'll put out a new faction at least once a year. But, you know, the big box, we won't leave any extra space for this new ones. We'll just, you know, you're stuck putting it somewhere. Anyway, looking forward to new stuff. Glad I got to the table. Niroshima Hex. Played Catch the Moon. Catch the Moon is a dexterity game. I am always looking to try new dexterity games. Catch the Moon is about using wooden ladders. And you roll a die and you're obliged to place a wooden ladder onto the structure of wooden ladders in a particular way. For example, one of the results is you have to put a ladder such that it is now the highest ladder. You have to, another one is you have to place a ladder such that it is touching exactly one ladder. So you tend to have the feet of the ladder intersect with the rungs of other ladders. So it's hanging off at a weird angle and you end up with this 
pile of strange angles and ladders jutting out that's, that's instances. How, isn't that how workmen do things? Like when they need to get higher than their ladder, they just sort of start stabbing ladders into each other to get to the No, 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 no. That's, that's desperately unsafe. I think OSHA recommends duct tape. Duct tape. You just duct tape the two ladders together, and you can do this ad infinitum. That's how you reach the moon. Ah, that makes way more sense. It's very simple. It is exactly what I wanted it to be, a novel dexterity game using components that I had not yet had an opportunity to stack. I don't know that it is the kind of thing that I would rush out to add to my collection, but I was very, very happy to give it a try. Novelty is, as ever, a good thing with such toys, and I will always be willing to give such things a shot. This was by Fabien Griffot and Juan Rodriguez, published by Bombix. Yeah, I've seen... Catch the Moon. I've seen pictures. I'm very much looking forward to trying it. It plays exactly as you would imagine from the pictures. Awesome. I got to play Feast for Odin. With the Norwegians expansion. You Norweged. We Norweged. And it was on our streaming, so if you want to check it out, it is on our live channel on our YouTube. And it's great. We both love Feast for Odin. It is this yet another Tetromedo, sort of you start with a billion negative points and you have to- A billion? A billion. Wow. It's quite a few. That's a lot. It is a lot. And you need to get this engine going, whether it be whaling or breeding pigs or sheep or horses or cows or fishing or trapping or raiding. So there's all sorts of different paths you can do. I, I went with a totally different one. I, actually, I usually don't breed animals. I was breeding some animals. I was doing yeah, some you, need, you need the Norwegians in order to try to make the animals work. It's true. Pre-Norwegians, it's probably a sucker's play. Agreed. There are – what Norwegians does, it changes up because there, there were – there's 60 different action spaces in the original game. There are even more now in the Norwegians because it has a whole new column, but they do have some holes in it. But what it does, I th- it does what it does well is there was definitely spaces in that original one that no one used and that were a bit, you know, broken or didn't work well. And they took those out, they reworked it, and I think this new new board is much better than the old board. You even get your own little personalized hut that you can build. All sorts of interesting things going on. It's definitely an expansion I would recommend if you enjoy Feast for Odin. Feast for Odin is designed by Uwe Rosenberg, and Janot Kope did the expansion. Played a game called Zeppelin Attack. This is a deck builder that was released in 2014, and it is once again an attempt to leverage deck building in a sort of directed attack at other players kind of setup. There have been a number of such attempts over the years. Arctic Scavengers was probably one of the first, and Nightfall followed shortly on its heels. I've never really found it to work terribly, terribly well. I'll have to say that Zeppelin Attack, although not particularly compelling, handled it better than most. Essentially, you're a mad scientist and you have all these zeppelins, and your zeppelins are the things that permit you, or the sort of aperture through which you are going to do your actions. And zeppelins have a variety of ratings that allow you to play various different kinds on them. For example, I might have this operations card that's really good. Well, in order to play the card without n- nuking one of my zeppelins, I'm gonna have to, n- I'm gonna need a zeppelin out in front of me that has an operations value high, to- high enough to carry the card, otherwise I have to do something called overloading, but... The details are not important. And you attack each other's zeppelins, but at that point it devolves into a symbol matching exercise while I attack you with a psychic attack. Do you have any psychic defenses in your hands? Yes? No? That part is fine. It at least resolves very quickly. I mean, one could easily imagine uh, a system or a setup whereby there would be lots of dice rolling involved, or you'd have to start drawing cards from your deck or revealing modifiers, etc., etc. It's just a very, very simple matching exercise. And honestly, it was inoffensive. I mean, I've said it before, it's hard to make a deck builder that's tedious and painful. And a Zeppelin attack absolutely was functional. 
The one thing that did strike me as mildly obnoxious was the way currency work was potentially novel. Currency is all one-shots in Zeppelin Attack. Whenever you buy anything, the currency cards go out of your deck. And so acquiring currency, especially in the early part of the game, is very, very important. The trick is, as you acquire currency, some of them trigger one-shots. And some of them are just bad for you. And some of them are just arbitrary. And some of them lead to strange game states. It did not improve the game at all, and in point of fact was, I think, the biggest sticking point in an otherwise, as I say, perfectly functional, kind of okay beer and pretzels encounter. I can easily imagine, in the right context with the right kind of aggressively-minded players, Zeppelin Attack could easily become a favored filler of some type. But as it was, I, I was perfectly happy to play it, but there are many, many other deck builders I would rather play. That is Zeppelin Attack by... Oh, I'm sorry. I've been missing it. It's not Zeppelin Attack. It's Zeppelin Attack! Ooh, you big have, exclamation point. You there. have to show... Yeah, exactly. It's you have true. to show the, the, the punctuation. Punctuation matters. It's by Eric B. Vogel, Evil Hat Productions. Odd that you'd talk about Arctic Scavengers, because that's what I'm going to talk about next, because it's now on Board Game Arena, and I've played it quite a few times this week. It is, like you said, another deck builder. But I am a sucker for post-apocalyptic, so the world's frozen over. And I think it does a good job of sort of capturing that because you have different... In, in that it is a glacial pace and tedious? Exactly. Yeah. Um, so you have these different uh, phases that you can do when it's your turn. You can hunt or you can dig for, you know, relics or you can, uh, you know, hire guys and you're hiring, you know, medics or leaders. And the object of the game is to have the most population at the end. And there's going to be these fights that happen every so often. And it's just cards you didn't use you sort of put into your fight pile and you try to win that round's fight which gets you more population and this is by Rio Grande Games designed by Robert K. Gabhart and I really enjoy it I did get rid of my uh, physical copy but that's only because no one wanted to play it but there are quite a few people out there that really do enjoy Arctic Scavengers and I am one of them I could conceive of it perhaps being relatively inoffensive on an online implementation. I just remember it being a tedious relic from the immediate post-Dominion era when a whole bunch of people were trying things mostly that didn't work. Agreed. It does work a lot better online, for sure. Good to hear. Played two games of Capital Lux 2 Generations. One of the virtues of Capital Lux 2 as opposed to the first one, and indeed as opposed to Capital Lux 2 Pocket, is that there are many different configurations. There are going to be four suits in every game, and each suit can have one of up to four different special abilities whenever you play into that suit in Capital Lux 2 Generations. Indeed, in one of the setups that we tried, one of the suits actually engendered a fifth suit, which worked out to be very, very interesting, in that the fifth suit would be compared to all the other suits in play. It's an interesting game of brinkship because, as I've said before, there are these four different suits and you want to have the highest possible value in each of the suits, but your value in a given suit cannot exceed what the, the value of the suit is in the middle of the table. And you can either play to the middle of the table to increase the limit, or you can play to your own tableau in an effort to win that majority. And every time you play to the middle, you trigger the special power, which can have a variety of different, different effects. And I really enjoy Capital X2 Generations. The different setups, none of them feel radically different from each other. This isn't one of those cases where you feel like you're playing an entirely different game or it completely upends the fundamental sense of tension. But given that there is already a built-in sense of tension in Capital X2 Generation, uh, Generations, that's fine. It provides just enough variety such that I 
like trying them in different combinations. I've now tried all of the different powers in Capital X Two Generations at least once, but that's only been in this sort of set. Use all the A versions, use all the B versions, use all the C versions, use all the D versions varieties. I have not yet started to experiment with perhaps a curated version of all my favorite versions and seeing what happens as a consequence of that. Capital X Two Generations is really good. It's very quick, very simple to explain, has lots of interesting decision points. I was in one of those situations where even on my fourth or fifth play in round two, I was I started looking back on the past three plays, realizing I did that completely wrong. I've completely misplayed this round, and I'm going to lose as a consequence. And sure enough, that happened. And I do like that for such a simple game, there are these little moments of revelation like that. I think it's really going to fit in well with people who want to play non-aggressively confrontational, relatively light but interesting games. And given that there's a number of people that want to cycle in and out of that, I think it's going to see some use. This is designed by Eilif Svensson and Christian Amundsen-Ostby and a port of games. I'm interested in introducing you to it. I want to, it sounds good to me. Lastly, for me, you and I got to play a game called Wonderland's War, designed by Tim Elsner and Ben Elsner and Ian Moss. This is put out by Druid City Games, and this is sort of a bag-building conflict game where you're designing your bag to help you win these battles and and keep your your corruption down and you're doing the tea party action which helps you build your bag this game looks gorgeous it's full of theme and it is i feel really long <laughs> what do you think mark i don't know if this is just me because you know it was you know getting to the end of the night or if it's it's i'm worried more worried about the uh people at the table thinking it's long even though it's not and i'm just getting hypersensitive about it I'm not sure. It was long. I, I don't know. It didn't feel very long. That's the good news. And I think that that might have just been a function of player count. I wonder, since it's a two to five player game, I suspect five players might not be the ideal configuration, especially if some of the players there are new. True. We did play it at the full five. So I think that with three or four, especially if there's an effort to keep things brisk, the good news is it's only three rounds long. So you don't really feel like you're doing the same thing over and over and over again. The problem is, is that the conflict resolution, although interesting when you're involved, is not interesting when you're not involved. It feels very much like quacks getting over long. And there's no real way to speed it up because you have to pull the chips one at a time. And I generally feel that people, myself included, don't bow out often enough. They don't know when to leave good enough alone and stop because it's not really a conflict game. It's more, well, I mean, it, it plays out as a conflict game, but it's a conflict game via Russian roulette. And you keep pulling chips and a lot of them are going to negate your presence there. Your troops don't contribute to your strength. Your troops just contribute to the number of times you can effectively pull the wrong thing. And that's an interesting dynamic. As a, as a conflict resolution mechanism, as a way to resolve a fight in a given area, I think it's pretty novel and interesting. And I do appreciate that novelty. I, I think it falls kind of sort of in the same category as a bunch of games we played over the past few months, like Circadian's Chaos Order, like, uh, in my case, Tsukiyumi Full Moon Down. Really interesting conflict games that are probably about a half hour longer than they wanted to be, maybe even more. And I share your concern. I, I, I want to see what it's like with three or four players who really know what they're doing. I really think, I, I think there are just the three mechanisms. I don't, I don't think it's too long because there are main mechanisms there that need to develop, right? You have to, you have your own personal board that sort of has to get powered up. You have your bag that you have to build and you have the board where you have to get your castles out. So all of these things would have to develop over time. And I just think that 
maybe it was just the player count and the fact that we had some two new players as well. So maybe that all of that just led to me thinking that it was going longer than it should have. I don't think it dragged, suffice to say. Well, that's good. And I thoroughly enjoyed going back to it. I think Wonderland's War is, is really cute and clever. I think the way the Tea Party phase, which is basically just a relatively simple rondelle mechanism of claiming cards leading into a relatively simple conflict resolution mechanism that is a function of the cards you've taken previously. I think it really works very well. It's a novel take on bag building, and I, I definitely think that it is taking the central conceit of something like Quacks and turning it into an actual game. That is why I got it. <laughs> Indeed. Perfect. Finally, for me, I will just note, uh, before I get into my last game, that I played another game of Stroganov. It is always a good sign when, recently after reviewing a game, I'm inclined to go back to it. So that is an instance that Andreas Stedding's recent offering has legs in the immediate aftermath, and that I'm not burnt out on it yet. And the final game that I played that was uh, new to me was a game called Flourish. Flourish is a drafting game about making gardens, designed by James A. Wilson and Clarissa A. Wilson put up by Starling Games. Now, the way that it works is you have a hand of six cards. Every round, you play one card to your tableau, which will eventually have 12 cards, and you pitch one card over the wall. There are literally these little cardboard walls, and you throw throw one over the wall to each of your neighbors. Trash, I don't want it. Exactly. But the interesting part about Flourish is you can play it either cooperatively or competitively, because a lot of the cards score based on the tableau of your neighbors. So you might have the traditional thing, this is garden-themed, so you might have something that say, okay, at the end of the game, score two points for each of your orchids. But you might also have a card that say, at, at the end of the game, or indeed in the middle of the game, score one point for each of your neighbor's orchids of the neighbor that has the most orchids. And obviously, these cards have radically different valences, depending on whether you're playing competitively or cooperatively. And there was the relatively interesting dynamic of playing cooperatively, whereby I was trying to get as deep as possible in a couple different symbols while my two neighbors were doing the same, and balancing that against feeding them cards that would score off of my symbols versus the, the, the cards for me scoring off of my symbols. Because there wasn't really a whole lot of overlap. There aren't any cards that say, score for your leaves or for your opponent's leaves or your neighbor's leaves. It doesn't work that way. And so in a competitive game, I wonder if it would be... Uh, less interesting just because if I'm going to go deep into leaves, I would just never show my opponents those leaf cards. I don't know. But as far as drafting games go, there was more player interaction than there was in a lot of drafting games. I had to pay a lot of attention to what my neighbors wanted. So our favorite drafting game, Fairy Tale, leverages that by letting you, by making you draft five cards and only playing three every round. So it's got some built-in leverage there. But in Flourish, given that you're always passing cards as well as playing cards means that you have to make those prioritization choices at the same time. And I enjoyed it. I'd happily play it again. I'd be vaguely curious to try the competitive version. Uh, the, cooper the cooperative version was perhaps a little too easy on our first try. We got the gold achievement level. It's basically a score attack. Mm -hmm. We have very, very impressive cards, Walker. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah I was interested in this because this is the next output by the people that did Everdale which is something I talk about in the news, so it sort of leads into what is about to talk about. Well, I preferred to Everdell. At least there was a, a, a little bit there was a little bit more going on at the same time as it taking less time. So there was not, however, a giant cardboard tree. Probably a good thing. You got to see the whole board. Exactly. Those are the games we played last week. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. 
I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Like I was saying, Everdale is now on Steam. They have a digital implementation. I played a little bit. Works great. Looks gorgeous, just like the game does. You get to play solo if you want and against bots, so... That means you get to play a game whenever you like. So if Everdale's your thing and you ever want to try it, now's your time. It was designed by Direwolf, the same people that do a bunch of other digital implementations. Check it out. I still haven't forgiven Starling Games for how they go after Etsy sellers. It's true. It's not classy. It's not cool. I don't like it. It's not right. I also don't like the fact, although this is a much, much more petty complaint, but it's never one I've brought up on, on the show before, how they have that obnoxious card where you're supposed to take a selfie of it whenever you win and post it on social media. Yeah, they had that in Titan as well. Yeah, I, I yes, I remember that. I object to game companies trying to get us to do their marketing for them. <laughs> That's kind of ironic. Cough. <laughs> Next up is... Uh, Hey, Mark, did you know that this is episode 225? That look, means we have to talk about our Patreon. Look, here's the thing. First, we're not asking our <laughs> friends and our customers to go market for us, although occasionally we do. <laughs> look, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts lately where I feel like the ads have just started to get insane. One of my favorite podcasts about the Supreme Court routinely has like three two-minute ads in a row. I don't need to hear that much about cereal and skincare products, Walker. I really don't. Oof. Anyway, every other week we get offers to run ads. We don't want to run ads. We're not going to. We have a Patreon. We've had, we have several months in a row of four bonus episodes a month. Last week I shipped off about 20 games to uh, various patrons just for the cost of shipping. You do a great segment called Bloat. Thank you. You get uh, notifications of when we put out videos, of which we've put out two and are under the new format. Check out our Patreon if you're inclined. We have a Discord server. We, we also have a Discord server. We do stuff. Stuff and things. Heroescape Walker. I know, right? Heroescape's coming back. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I'm worried. Wait, because uh, okay, they did, I'm worried they, too. They, they did have the magic edition of Heroescape. Yes. Right? So okay, so here's what happened. At Gen Con, perhaps you've heard of it. Hasbro, perhaps you've heard of them, put out an announcement, a teaser trailer for Heroescape Age of Annihilation. Now wait, I know now hold on. I want everyone to get comfortable because the amount of information that was in this trailer <laughs> yeah sit down make sure you've gone to the washroom before going this, uh, getting into the trailer because you don't want to have any interruption during the what all of 15 seconds of it, it holds of the teasing. name yeah it's, it said hero escape it shows the name yeah absolutely it's impossible to tell what form it's going to take. Uh, there is, however, good news from the Heroescapers forums. Craig Van Ness is going is leading the dev team with a whole bunch of experienced members of the Heroescapers forums who have been churning out Heroescape expansions ever since Heroescape died. It's not unlike the Project Nisei developments recently for Netrunner. And so I have confidence in, in that perspective from the design element. Now, Heroescape, let us be frank, let us speak as adults, Walker. We love Heroescape. 
And Hero Escape has some has some quality skirmish elements to it. It's a toy. Yes, it is one hundred percent. It succeeds exclusively by virtue of pre-planted pre-painted miniatures and the terrain. If it's lacking either, no. But it's a great gate for for young children absolutely to get into this type of hobby. Absolutely. Now, I I wonder. My suspicion, which is half cynical and half approving, is that Hasbro took the appropriate lesson from the recent Hero Quest reprint. And they've realized that there are nerds like us with more money than sense. And so I suspect what might happen is they're going to make a new HeroScape Master Set, charge $265 for it, slap it on Hasbro Pulse, and laugh all the way to the bank. Mark, I'm throwing money at the screen. I know. And I, I don't see HeroScape. I, I, re- I, I say this, but if they do that, <laughs> I will give them the money they're asking for. <laughs> Again, assuming it's got pre-painted minis in the plastic frame. If it's lacking either, No. And it would be nice if it was sort of back compatible too. Absolutely, hundred percent. I don't. I would be very surprised. Again, I, I've got a somewhat cynical perspective. I'm not. I'm trying to man, manage my expectations. I would be somewhat surprised if they didn't make it backwards compatible. If they did something like the Magic: The Gathering thing, where they use some of the bits, and visually there are some touchstones, but it's not the same game, and you can't use the units from from the old stuff and the, the new stuff, and vice versa. Especially given that they've bothered to go to the HeroScapers community for all these people who've been working in the HeroScape milieu. Because if they just wanted to do something different with the HeroScape name, they've got an army of in-house developers they could have done that for, and just to churn out a quick buck. It's then true. again. I could be completely wrong. We can hope. So Imperium, the name that is overused. <laughs> wait, wait, is this a contention or wait? No, yeah, wait. I know, I know. That's the problem. In point of fact, I don't even know that there is a name simpliciter for it. I'm referring to the Civ-themed deck builder de- designed by David Tertze and Nigel Buckle, published by Osprey. There were two sets, Imperium Classics and Imperium Legends. I don't know if there is a category term for the game system itself. Is it just Imperium Simpliciter? I don't know. Who's to say? This is all very complicated. But anyway, there's going to be a new standalone expansion. Imperium Back to Basics. Imperium Horizons. Oh, Horizons with sorry. 14 new sieves, which is a lot, Walker. That is many new sieves. That's, yeah. That's almost as much as has been released heretofore in both of the prior base games combined. There's going to be a new module that they say is going to perhaps increase the player interaction from almost none to perhaps more than almost none. But one thing I just want to flag, I mentioned this on Twitter, a lot of Civ games, the overwhelming majority of Civ games, have the same civilizations represented over and over and over again. And if you want non-Western Civs, if you want indigenous Civs from the Americas, especially if you want indigenous Civs from the from North America, you are going to have a very, very, very small number of options. But the Imperium system has, generally speaking, been slightly more diverse in terms of the different Civs that it's represented. I mean, it helps that they've already started with 16, and now they're going to do with go with 14 more. And although the details have not been released specifying what new civilizations will be represented, it appears as though that trend is very much going to continue with lots of non-Western, non-European peoples being represented. And that's great. So good for them. So do you think it's going to just be a Civ expansion? I know there's not a lot of information, but I didn't look into it at all. Is it just going to be uh, the decks of cards and it won't be standalone? Because it is a it new expandalone. It is another expandalone. Yes. Okay. Because like, just to be... With a third set of base cards. Yeah. To be clear, the, the two sets that came out prior, you could play them totally by themselves. Absolutely. And indeed, they had although they had the same 
set of base decks, the constitution of those decks was different. And so now, in addition to picking which civs you want to play as, as well as having new bots for all the solo AI for all the 14 civs that, that are going to be released in this set, you will now have a third set of base cards from which to choose for each of the varying different kinds of base deck cards that you can choose from. Nice. Yeah. Finally, just a final, uh, another reminder, we, Walker and myself, so very wrong up at games, will be at the Shut Up and Sit Down Expo, Shucks, from September 30th to October 2nd in Vancouver. Hope to see you there. That is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now on to the main review, which is Carnegie. Our feature game this week is indeed Carnegie, designed by Xavier Georges and Quinted Games, put out this year after a successful Kickstarter. Xavier Georges has designed 2009's Carson City, as well as 2010's Trois, 2012's Ginkopolis, and 2019's Black Angel, albeit Trois and Black Angel were co-designed with Sébastien Dujardin and Alain Orban. We have already reviewed on this podcast Black Angel. We found it kind of okay. We are big fans of Ginkopolis. Ginkopolis is definitely my favorite output heretofore of Javier Georges. And we have had occasion to discuss in passing in the past Carson City and Trois. But more on that later. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Carnegie? Well, in Carnegie, I guess you are trying to be like Carnegie. You're, you're building all this infrastructure. Walker is shrugging here. I think this is an appropriate response to the theming framing yes. of the game. Yes. But there, go, sorry, go I, is, I shouldn't interrupt your no, unhelpful no, it, It's fine. Because that's, that's exactly right. There is not much to grab onto as theme. Yes. You're not even trying to impress Carnegie. Normally, in, it, th- this is the kind of game that had it been released 10 years ago, you'd be trying to impress Carnegie. Yes, he, because when he died, <laughs> he gave money to all sorts of foundations and started all sorts of charity work. Bunch so he, of libraries. So he, bunch of libraries. So you could you could have even framed it as, you know, you're trying to be the next one and, and get in on some of that money. But no, they. You're, I guess you're just trying to, you know, retrace his steps and sort of... Something, something industry. Some, yeah. Something, something charity. Carnegie. Trains. <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot about trains. Yeah. So that's what you're doing. You're you're choosing select. You're choosing actions in a way, which activates all the buildings of that type, and they activate a number of times that a workers are in there. There's lots of sort of puzzly things to figure out when it's your turn, and I'm excited to tell you about it. <laughs> so to me, uh, the the novel element of Carnegie is precisely the fact that. Of the four actions you can take, all of them relate to building management. You've got this building board in front of you with a variety of offices that may be occupied by some number of workers, and that's fundamentally all that happens in the actions of the game. Some player picks a type of office you're going to activate, and then everyone activates all the offices of that type. Now, there's some movement of workers within the offices. That can be very expensive and time-consuming. There's movement of officers of employees, rather, from the offices to the board, and vice versa. And that's one of the key ways you actually get money through these things called missions, or rather income in general, because it's not always just money. And that aspect just of managing your workforce and managing the offices that they may be occupying, that I thought was one of the key clever elements of Carnegie. Yeah, because you have to have active workers in those offices in order to activate them, and you can activate them a number of times that you have active workers, if that makes sense to how I spoke it. <laughs> and, <laughs> and like you said, you 
I, this is how I teach the game. You really need to look at this action board because you get to do, there's 20 actions that are going to happen in the game. And there is, uh, sorry, I've written here. Yes, 20 actions. There are eight times potentially that you can do these donations. More on that later. And then like Mark said, there are 12 opportunities for income. And you have to be set up for this income because income is going to happen in certain districts. And like he said, you have to have workers on missions in those districts in order for you get to get income because you must at least pull one of those b workers back to the office to engage income. And then there are all these tracks in those areas. You get the income from there. And then there's all of this income that you have on your board that you're going to get from there as well. And so you sort of have to plan ahead. You have to look at this, at this timeline board and you have to see where this income is going to happen. And you have to make sure you seed the board appropriately or else you're going to be in a lot of trouble. When playing Carnegie, and I don't claim to be very good at it, but to my mind, the entire game is about rhythm. The entire game is about making sure that when income gets triggered in a particular region, you have workers there. That when a particular building type is activated, a particular office type is activated, you can do something with that. Because normally, in a role selection game, and that's exactly how Carnegie works. Somebody selects an action, and then everyone does that action in yeah, sequence. It's like a follow, like either Empire is the Void or... Or, or uh, Puerto Rico. Or Puerto Rico or TI4. Absolutely. Normally, though, in games like that, and indeed in the past I've criticized it when games don't do it enough, the person who picks the action gets some kind of benefit. I get a bonus to the action, and everyone else does the, the action in the normal way. Carnegie, initially, I thought was going to suffer from not having it. I don't think that it does, because primarily what you do is you can look around the board and notice, aha, I can't help but notice that Huey is not in a position to put out any discs because his either his building office isn't occupied, or he has no discs to put out, or he lacks the resources to put the discs out yeah. in the first place. Yeah, there's so many things you have to have ready. Like you said, you have to, have to make sure you have enough money, you have to make sure you have enough production cubes, you have to, have to make sure you have active workers in all the areas so you can activate them. And like you said, you have to have building discs ready to go out on the board. Precisely. And so the benefit that you get from picking that action is you can be guaranteed, number one, that it's something you can do. Seldom is it the case, I think that you would look at the action board and think, well, I'm not ready to do any of these things. That seems a bit of a stretch. I, that's never happened to me. And again, I'm not a very good good player of Carnegie. And I can't remember other people talking about that happening. No, Carnegie. because mostly because there's an action that sort of gets, is the get ready for future actions. It's like move all the workers around your office, get them all activated. And that's... Well, I, there, I would argue that there are two kind of get ready actions. There's the move your workers around action. And then there's the R&D action. Correct. Because the R&D action is how you improve your income it's how you get discs ready to be put out on the board. And if anything, if I have a criticism about how inflexible Carnegie is at the beginning, it's that I think you're really going to live or die by early R&D. Because if you fall behind the R&D curve, I'm not sure it's that easy to recover. I think it can be one of those cases where you can be effectively knocked out and be a dead player walking and not know it. Because if you can't get, if you can't cycle up your income and you can't get your discs available, by the end of the game, you're going to be looking down and saying, well, I can build because I've got the resources and the people, but I don't have enough R&D and nobody else is taking R&D because they already done their R&D. So all that I can do is take the R&D action on my turn. All the other players will cash that R&D in for points because near the end of the game, you can absolutely do that. Meanwhile, I'm stuck doing it for the bare necessities and then hope hope later on that somebody else will pick the action so that I can then do something with these resources I just unlocked. It's true. Let's cycle back because they are for because of that R&D thing and the setup. 
of the game is fairly easy unless you're playing with less than four players. And I wouldn't yes. suggest playing with less than four. Some people will say, well, it's not that big big a deal. You just seed the board. But it is kind of a pain. You have to get out the solo deck and start flipping cards and you're filling it. I think this game just works best at four. It's not particularly involved, but gosh, it doesn't feel obnoxious. It, exactly so. Then it, ha- it does something else that is obnoxious. It asks players that may not have ever played this game before to choose one of these 16 different buildings as your first building. And I think this is a fairly important choice to lay on a person that has not played before. And without going over what all 16 buildings do on top of the you know nine that are on your board, I think that's asking a bit much. So, you know, usually just say, here's what you know, the billions on your board do, and here's the book if you want to read what the what the ones over on the side do, and you better look at it quick because you're about to, you know, <laughs> pick your first one. And if you don't get an R&D building right off the beginning, you're going to be in a little bit of trouble, maybe. I'm sure we're going to get backlash. You know, I never pick an R&D building, but it is fairly important. Okay, well, we can definitely point to a certain dynamic where everyone else at the table ramps up their R&D early and you don't. They take early R&D actions, and so the rest of the table is not going to help you getting that R&D, and then they go off and use those resources. And while they're using those resources that they got through the R&D, you can't because you didn't get your R&D running up in the first place. That's that's precisely the power curve that I'm talking about. Again, Carnegie is a game about rhythm. Sometimes if you're off the rhythm by one or two steps, that's okay. You can recover. But I really feel that the R- the overall early R&D rush, or because it improves your income, of course you want to improve your income in the early parts of the game. It seems obvious. Uh, there are dynamics where nobody does it, of course, in which case you have, you might have a different aspect of the rhythm, but the early R&D rhythm seems to be characteristic of a lot of what's going on. And on top of the whole issue of setup for less than four players, it increases the likelihood that there's going to be a particular scarcity of certain kinds of buildings because you burn certain building supplies. Now, as far as your objection about new players being daunted by the prospect of having to pick a building, I don't know that it's all that bad. I mean, lots of Euro games force you to make very early consequential decisions on precious little experience. For example, even simple auction games, your first bid or your first set of bids can be incredibly daunting. Any splatter game, I would rank far, 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 far worse than Carnegie. I've seen you teach the game and you basically ask a series of, uh, you can ask some simple questions like, what is it that you want to be better at? And then you can guide someone towards a choice. It's not the end of the world, but when the tile supply has been artificially limited. I remember one game in particular. We were playing with three players. Some of the early R&D uh, buildings got got turfed out. And then you and Huey, who were earlier in turn order for picking the early buildings, took all the remaining R&D buildings. And then both of you looked at each other and said, uh, yeah, Mark's basically done. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And then I saw myself being done. <laughs> I'm not going to say that I immediately lost. I misplayed that game, of course. But, ugh. So to my mind, it's less about the daunting early choices and more about the early game rhythm being so much more consequential from the late game game rhythm, which again, a relatively common dynamic amongst heroes. One thing it does do that is helpful to new players is that it gives you a free move at the beginning of the game of your workers. So you sort of see how this dynamic works. And at when I first played, I thought it was just going to be one of these things where it's like, okay, get your workers back, move, like just sort of like brain brain damage, you know, put them out, bring them back, put them out, bring them back. But right. there's not, there's, there's very 
interesting decision spaces because you can move them out into empty areas, which makes building new buildings cheaper. They're sort of moving the buildings that you don't really want to use them in, but just because that's all the movement you had because there's, you know, a, a move, move your workers building that you have to populate in order to get more movement. So there's a lot of choices to be made there because some, some areas are free to stand them up and some cost money. So you might, you know, populate in a certain way that you can afford. And the game does something else that's very interesting. The fact that at the end of every action, no matter what, what buildings you're activating, you get an opportunity to stand guys up because even though someone picked a movement action and you couldn't afford some other actions might've happened that got, got you some money. So now you can, you know, afford to stand them up. And I thought that was a great way just to keep the game moving. Yes, especially since, as you say, most actions require you to have several different resources in conjunction and certain resources in the right places in order to get anything done. Absence of any one feature can make you completely unable to respond when someone takes a given action. And so, again, it's a question of, of capitalizing on that rhythm. Try to do actions that are good for you, but deny the opportunity of your opponents to sometimes even do anything at all. And this, I suppose, is as good a time as any to bring up the donations, because, again, in, in, in some sort of thematic effort to point to Carnegie, I guess I'll complain about the theme briefly now. In addition to it being thematically incoherent, what exactly we are doing or who we are, just following in the mold of Carnegie, I guess, uh, I, I'm, I'm sick to death of the Euro mold of, you know, some great white dude in history, like impress him or be like him or whatever. Uh, Carnegie's legacy is better than most. Like at least he didn't conquer the Mesoamerica. Like, <laughs> so there's that. I mean, yeah, he, he was pretty anti-union and he might've been responsible for a flood, but anyway, setting all that aside, he was anti-imperialist. That's something. So give him credit. He tried to help the Philippines stay independent by offering them 20 million bucks so they could reject America's offer to buy them for 20 million bucks. Anyway, it's a little anecdote, but whatever. So in an effort to, evoke Carnegie's philanthropy, a chunk of your endgame points are going to come from these donations that you can make at various points of the game. And one of the non-trivial elements of Tempo is having enough cash on hand to make those donations when the donation time comes up. Now, the problem is, or at least a problem, again, thematically, and, and it just makes it less interesting than it could have been, is it's relatively standard endgame bonus stuff from Euros. It's like, oh, those things that were giving you points, now they're worth one more point each. Or, oh, this is, you can buy buy points at the end of the game or cash yeah. out your cubes and get points. At the, eh, I yeah, mean, these, standard these, stuff. These things that you're doing anyway, you're yeah. going to get some more points for them. Yeah, exactly. And so rather than an opportunity to even, and again, this would have been thematically appropriate, like, Instead of having an opportunity of doing something completely disconnected from all this industrializing we're doing all over the United States of America, it just kind of doubles down on that kind of thing. So you end up feeling like a generic industrialist anyway. It's true. There is, I guess it's a good place to talk about the, you have these extra modules that you can get. I should have actually read through those donations to see if they did change it up. But there is a whole new set of donations that you can switch up and change what they do. There are all sorts of different buildings that can replace the 16 or add on to the 16 that you already have. They have a whole sort of bidding system, which I think we should try the very first time you get like sort of $50 to start and you buy what production cubes you want to start with, how much money you want to start with. And you also put a bid in for the first turn. And I thought that was very interesting as well. So all sorts of different things that you can add to the game on top of subtle, but consequential differences to your production tracks. 
uh, an A and B side in each, and you can mix and match and make your own choice. Yeah, I mean, th- there's a fair amount of variety in the game, despite the fact that, as I say, the the fundamental rhythm of the game feels kind of comparable from game to game. You know, try to make sure you're at the right place at the right time for income. Try to make sure you've got the workers in the right place at the right time to activate the various kinds of offices. And Honestly, I mean, all, all of it is functional. All of it is clever. I think those instances where you take an action and deny someone else uh, the ability to fully capitalize on it, it doesn't feel especially painful. You know, it's not one of those instances where I just lock you out for turn after turn and you sit there frustrated. It's more like, oh, I didn't, I didn't set things up properly or you outplayed me. And so as a result, I have a, a less than efficient turn. The, the key problem that I have, and to a certain extent, I was not at all surprised that it was designed by Javier Georges, is that other than Gigopolis, I find all his games very clever, very well designed, and not particularly moving or engaging. You know, somewhere around the six to seven on Board Game Geek scale. It's like, yeah, they're fine. They're okay. They don't really grab me. Like, I hear people talk about Toi and how great Toi is. It's like, yeah, it's clever. It's well done. I don't ever particularly feel like playing it. And I honestly feel the same way about Carnegie. It's extremely well done. And I don't think that mechanically there are any serious deficiencies to it. And I joke about the theme, but honestly, it doesn't grate on me all that much while I'm playing it. But it just doesn't grab me. I find it a little bit soulless, a little bit mechanical. Oh, I do. I love the puzzly bits of trying to make sure you're always going to have something to do. And like you said, you can lock other players out. But if you play it full four players, everyone has a token. Where if someone uh, chooses an action, you say, no, I'm, this round I'm not going to do that action. I'm going to do this action instead. And that does sometimes throw a sort of... Uh, sort of lip into it because if you play at the right time like I just before you're about to choose an action then you can seed certain parts of the board that just got used and then take that action immediately and no one is ready for it anyway that oh, yeah, all yeah, being no, a- there's ton- there's tons of opportunity for clever play I'm not I'm not disputing no, no. that in the slightest and then there's no, no I'm not I'm not directly disputing sure. what you're saying and then there's the production value. I, I went on it to say, oh, I better find out what the what the what just the retail version looked like. Well, they didn't make a retail version. This is just, they did mm. Carnegie Deluxe. That's, yeah. well, at least the Kickstarter was. Maybe you couldn't get a retail version on the Kickstarter. So I'm wondering if all they put out was the Carnegie Deluxe version. And it is fantastic. It has uh, uh, bins for all the players and you, you hand them out. and has everything they need, the tabs that go on their board, starting resources, starting production cubes. Everything they need. I don't. The color palette is a little bland, right? It's the, you know it doesn't stand out and make things super exciting. But I think the overall production, you know, leads to a well enjoyable experience. There is a retail edition. So far, there's only been the English and German retail edition that is only that's only been available for a brief time, and they plan on making retail editions for the other languages shortly. I, I will say though that in terms of the production of the Quinted Quinted Games in Carnegie, I think this is Eno Tool's best work. I think it's got the most consistent iconography that I can re- usually parse after a first play. I still have to go back to the the back of the rulebook to figure out what all the buildings do, but I get a sense of what's going on immediately, which is not true of all of his iconography. I really like the color tone. I really like the map of the board. I think that it's uh, a, a good balance of functional and visually appealing. And again, I have not had that experience with a lot of other, you know, tool designs. I love the fact that it has that, that one mechanism in the game that is the you're doing something terribly wrong. You can always trade a production cube for $1. <laughs> and that is an awful trade. And don't ever take that trade. 
and it means that you've done something very, very wrong. Well, it's but it, we've we did we've had instances where you're like a dollar <laughs> short for the donation, yes. and it's like you look down and it's like, okay, it's strange though. I mean, it's interesting you pointed out because it's so it sticks out like a sore thumb in the rest of the design. It does because in the rest of the design of Carnegie, and again in, in slightly different games, you mentioned Tracarion early on in the show. I criticized Tracarion because I really did feel like. It was the it was the case that you needed all the proper steps in order, or everything was going to catastrophically fall apart. Carnegie moves along and gives you enough opportunities to pivot, and gives you enough, there are enough actions in the game such that you can drop the ball a couple times and not feel like it's a calamitous disaster all the time. And when you don't have all your ducks in a row, it's usually because of a, of another player choosing to activate something prematurely. And so for those reasons, I think it's okay. But there's only really one free conversion you can ever make and that is selling cubes for a dollar a piece you can't buy cubes for an exorbitant rate you can't throw money at the problem and move workers to where they wouldn't otherwise be it's strange there's all these things that need to be exactly where they need to be but there's this one exception well if you're desperate for cash you can make this terrible sale whenever you want to it's unusual that's all so overall i think it's one of the best games i've played this year i would recommend it and i would play it anytime if you're a fan of other stuff by Javier Georges, you know, if, if you're one of those people for whom Trois, Black Angel, and Carson City are just revelatory, then I think you'll absolutely adore Carnegie and, and go forth and enjoy it with all due haste. Uh, but for me, uh, you know, I'll ha- I'll play it if 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 it's what people want to play, but it doesn't grab me. There's something about it that just leaves me feeling a little less motivated. It's okay and clever, but I'd rather play something with slightly more theme, slightly more flexibility, perhaps a slightly better fleshed out economy, and as a consequence, I, I, I wish I could enjoy it as much as Walker does. Carnegie. Play it at your local Carnegie library. So that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can find all our content information at our website, sowronggames.com slash contact. We read everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we can. Thank you again for spending time with us. We really do appreciate it. And we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.